So it is just possible that uh, as we've been going through Galatians and all this really, um, in, in some ways, quite, quite sophisticated uh, theology and, uh, you know, we're making some pretty fine distinctions in some ways between uh, legalism and uh, authentic, spirit-filled, uh, grace Christianity. Um, you know, it's like, oh man, all these ideas and all these arguments and, and you know, philosophy, it, it all feels very sort of abstract. And, uh, you know, the thing is, Mark, I'm, I'm a visual learner. I need to see this kind of nailed down in something, something I can see, something I can sort of touch, something that's tangible, something that's not like ideas, but... Uh, something that, that's kind of I can relate to, something I can kind of connect with. Well, okay. Uh, luckily for you, Paul's got this covered. So remember, a few weeks back we had this slide up, kind of contrasting, uh, going through Galatians and picking out all the things that Paul says on, on one side about uh, people who are legalists, people who are trying to be good people. You know, it's like if I, if I if I obey the rules, if I do enough religion and, and ritual and, and follow the regulations, I can show God that I'm good enough. I'm a good person who goes to church and worships Jesus and God will accept me. And actually, Paul's, Paul's kind of summary of their position and their situation uh, before God and their experience of life is pretty negative, uh, as you can see. Uh, they're under, actually, they're under God's curse. Uh, they're under the control of sin. They're in custody under the law. They're under this disciplinarian who, who tells them what to do and beats them when they don't do it. Um, and they're in slavery under demons. Uh, if you remember, we spent a couple of weeks ago quite a bit of time exploring that. Whereas, by contrast, you know, those who, who, who've given up trying to be good enough for God, you know, we're like, I'm never going to make it. And they just come to God and throw themselves on Christ and, and on His mercy and His love and His compassion and say, God, I'm not, I've given up. I've given up trying. I'm just trusting you to give me everything that I am, I, I so lack. Everything that I need to be accepted by you and loved by you and adopted. Paul's like, let me tell you what that's like. That's, that's a life of blessing. Not just in this age, but in the age to come. Uh, when we get into this next week, freedom. Oh, you know, it's like, it's really bizarre, isn't it? You know, we live in a world where people go, if you want to be free, you need to throw off all that religious junk and all that traditionalism and stop having people tell you what to do, you know, because, you know, Christianity is like this, this bitter, miserable experience of slavery. Actually, it's exactly the opposite. You know, Christianity is the only place where we can experience true freedom. We'll think of that next week. You're justified, declared by God to be righteous, adopted in Christ. You receive the Spirit and you become an heir and a co-heir with Christ. You will inherit the new creation. So you've got all these massive ideas. And Paul's telling us, listen guys, if you want something visual, if you want something to kind of nail all this down, um, there's a great story in the Old Testament that captures all this for us and kind of enacts it out within the life and the dynamics of a single family. And it's the story of uh, Abraham. And uh, Abraham 
and his, his wife Sarah and a slave, uh, Hagar, and the children that are born to Abraham through Sarah, by Sarah, and by Hagar. Uh, and if you just take the, the 10 or 11 verses that Jonathan's just read for us there from uh, Galatians 4, and, and you, you have that story at, at the forefront of your mind. Um, this slide that we've just gone through, uh, Paul kind of summarizes it all. He captures it all. He says, look, all of this you will see in this one story, this one family uh, the experience of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And we can, we can bring it all down to this. Um, and again, the, the ideas of slavery and freedom are, are really kind of top of the list. Um, but this, this slavery stuff is, is kind of enacted, embodied by the experience of Hagar, who, who is a, a slave. And Ishmael, her son, who is therefore born into slavery. And that's, that comes about um, when, when Abraham and Sarah try to take something that is promised by God as a gift. Okay, and that's so important. God promises a son. And, and Abraham and Sarah try to take this promise. And they try to, 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 to make that promise reality by the, the kind of the power, what Paul calls according to the flesh, or by the power of the flesh. You know, human initiative, human wisdom, human ideas. We're trying to take something God has promised to give us, and we're going to try to bring that about by our own efforts, by our own brilliance, by our own resources and our own capacity, okay? Uh, and actually what Paul says is that all of that links into Mount Sinai. And the law, this sort of legalistic way of dealing with it. And just, just as an aside, you think of how on earth do we get from Hagar to Sinai? All right, well, the key is Paran. So um, Hagar and Ishmael actually end up living in Paran. And in Deuteronomy 33, Moses tells us that that's where Mount Sinai is. So it's geography. All right, Hagar is living under the shadow of Mount Sinai. And Paul's like, oh, that is so important. Because it's all about slavery. All the things that are about slavery kind of congregate. Um, and, and, and of course, this, this slavery, this sense of um, being in bondage to the law, trying to use the law to prove to God how good we are. Remember, not as a railway track, but as a ladder. Paul's like, that, you know, that's kind of the, the spirituality. That's the religion that has captured the present city of Jerusalem. All right? So Paul's looking to Jerusalem uh, and, and kind of the religion that characterizes Jerusalem, which we know so clearly from the Gospels. Jesus was, was constantly hammering it, the kind of the religion of the Pharisees, who were like the legalists extraordinaire. They were the, they were the I mean, seriously, man, if anybody could have been a legalist, it would have been the Pharisees. But Paul's like, at the end of it all, it's rejection from God. All right, and remember what, what uh, at the end of the story, Hagar and Ishmael, they are not part of the family. And they are rejected and they are cast out. All right, and on the other side, you've got the freedom of Sarah. Uh, where I put it in blue, those are places where um, Paul doesn't actually name these things. 
but I'm thinking, you know, this is what Paul's got in mind to kind of match up the symmetry of the, the contrast that he's drawn. You've got Sarah, who, of course, is, is the wife of Abraham. That's very important. We'll see that in a minute. And um, gives birth to Isaac, who is the result of divine promise. All right. This is something that happens by the power of the Spirit. When, when, when there is no potential in humanity, when they have no capacity, when they have no resource, when they have no ability to actually make what God has promised become reality, then God acts. And by the power of the Spirit and on the basis of His promise, God makes happen what could never have happened otherwise. Right? And, and this all connects with Mount Zion or the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem uh, that is, is above um, and results not in rejection by God, but in receiving the inheritance from God. So remember, the, the key thing is that, that Ishmael will not share in the inheritance with Isaac. All right? The inheritance... That's for the children, not for the slaves, not for those who are enslaved. That's for those who have trusted Christ, not for um, the legalists. Right? And, and the important thing is that for Paul, you've got to really remember, this is what Paul, Paul's not, he's not talking about the law in the way that it should have been used. Okay, remember, we, we saw from, for moments that Paul sees the law and the commandments as something that is good and holy and righteous. The problem is not with the law. The problem is in the way the law is being used. Right? So it's being used as something that we can, we can obey to prove to God, to show God to how good we are, to earn our acceptance by God. And Paul's like, that's not what it's all about. Remember this um, diagram. Uh, you know, the, 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 the covenant, the, the, the covenant that's represented by, by Sarah in, in tonight's reading is the red line. You know, that's the, the eternal covenant that was forged uh, between the Father and the Son from eternity past. All right, this is how we're going to save people. By Jesus. All right, Jesus is going to come. And He's going to die. And He's going to give us the goodness, the righteousness that we need. So that we don't need to earn it ourselves. We can't earn it ourselves. But Jesus will, will clothe us in His righteousness. Um, and, and then for, for part of the church, you say, well, oh, we'll get into this properly in Galatians 5. Um, but the way then that that faith expressed itself was by obe- obedience to the law that was given at Sinai. Right? The problem is, when you take that, the red line away, when you take Jesus out of the equation, and you're just, you've just got the law, and I'm like, right, that's all I need. Just give me the law, and I'll do it. Tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it. And then, then I'll be a good Christian. Then I'll be acceptable to God. Right? It's amazing how many Christians, I will talk about this a bit more next week, but it's amazing to me how many Christians sort of basically function on that? You know, it just, Mark, just, you know, just, just tell me what to do, and I'll do that. I'm like, oh, I don't think it works like that. I don't think it works like that. All right, but you see, this is, this is um, 
when you just have the, the, the yellow bit, you just have the law, and you're like, it's okay, I'm going to show God that I'm good enough on my own. And, and Paul's like, no, no, you see, you do that, you, you put the ladder up and you start climbing it, but you will never get to, what does he say, to Jerusalem? That is from above. It's brilliant, that, isn't it? I'll get back to that. The Jerusalem that is above. And Paul's like, you know, you need to be born into that. Sounds very like the language of Jesus in John chapter 3 when he's talking to a legalist. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says is, listen, buddy, if you really, you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you want to, you want to even, uh, you, you don't even see the kingdom of God yet. You know, seriously, man, you, you're like the top dog. You're one of the top theologians in, 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 in the Pharisaical movement. You are like one of the best legalists in the world. I'll tell you, you, you don't even, you can't even see the kingdom of God from where you are. Right? Now, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be part of, not, not, not this, this religious system that's sort of represented by this earthly Jerusalem. No, you need to be born from above. Right? The Jerusalem that is above. And if that doesn't happen, Okay, if you are not born on the basis of the promise, by the power of the Spirit, if you are not set free from the slavery to sin and death and to these demonic spiritual realities that, that, are, that are feeding into the life of, of legalists, if you're, not, if you're not set free from all of that, Right? If you don't become part of the church that is the bride, of, if, you're not, if you don't become an heir and a co-heir with Christ, then what you are, by definition, is enslaved. That's all you have. You see, real Christianity is something that utterly transcends what can be achieved by human resource and human wisdom and human initiative and human capacity and human potential. All right? Christianity, you know, is, is something that is given to us by God. It's something that happens when the Spirit of God kind of dwells uh, within us. I, I want to be like, man, there's something wrong there's something wrong if I and, and if the life that I am living can be explained in terms of merely human categories. You know, if, if your life is explicable without reference to some kind of power beyond yourself, something's wrong. And if it's a church... What happens in the life of MIA, if, if that can be explained as, uh, uh, in human categories, uh, if that can be explained as the result of human efforts, then something's gone wrong. Right? That, that kind of religion isn't genuine, authentic, promise-based, spirit-enabled Christianity. 
And it doesn't result in the new creation future and our sharing in the inheritance of Christ. But by contrast, if what we are pursuing is Christ, then you know everything that we've seen in the book of Galatians kind of lines up and that, that becomes the reality of our experience. Spirit of God dwells in us as we believe the gospel of Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're set free. We become free in Christ. We become citizens of Zion, citizens of the heavenly city, citizens of the Jerusalem that is above. It doesn't matter who we are or what we've done or where we come from. It doesn't matter about our culture or our ethnicity or our socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter. Right? That, you know, go back to Psalm 87 that we started um, our service with earlier on. And I don't know if you just picked it up. This is, this is Old Testament. All right? And, and what's, what's being said here? Like, you know, who, who is a citizen of Zion? Who is a citizen of the heavenly city? When the Lord, who can be part of the church? Would you remember what, what, they, what they said? I need to get my glasses. Ah, fingerprint Bibles, that's what we need here. Um, I will record Rahab, which is a, another name for Egypt, and Babylon amongst those who acknowledge me, Philistia and Tyre, along with Cush. And I will say, this one was born in Zion. Um, that one, this one and that one were born in Zion. The Most High Himself will establish Zion. The Lord will write in the register of the people. This one, you know, people from all the different nations of the world are trusting in Christ. They're becoming Christians. They're being enrolled in the, in, in the Jerusalem that is above. And God's like, yep, yes, I adopt you in Christ. Yes, you are part of Jerusalem. Yes, you are part of my family. Right? And they're coming from all over the world. That, that's Old Testament Christianity. Right? This multi-ethnic international phenomena that is the church throughout the ages. Right? And, and the same idea that we see in Psalm 87 is being picked up when Paul quotes Isaiah 54 in tonight's reading. Um, Isaiah 54, again, uh, a passage, it's a brilliant passage. Um, One of the great things about Isaiah 54, of course, is that it comes straight after Isaiah 53. Yeah? Um, Which is, of course, you know, all about the work of Christ. Yeah? And the death and the resurrection of Christ prophesied with incredible clarity. In Isaiah 53. And then Isaiah 54. What's the, what, what, what comes after the work of Jesus, as it were? What is built on the work of Jesus? Well, you know, Paul gives us, gives us a head, gives us a clue on this, doesn't he? He gives us a heads up as we get into Galatians 4 and he quotes from, he quotes from Isaiah 54. And again, it's just this recognition that, you know, kind of, this heavenly city that, that is the result of God's promise that, that is built 
by the working of the Spirit of God that cannot be built by human initiative and human wisdom. It must be built on the work of Christ or it will not be built at all. All right, this, this Zion, which again is, is the bride, the wife of Christ. Your maker is your husband. You know, the Lord Almighty is His name. But this, this, this city, this wife of the Lord that cannot be, that cannot bear children by merely human effort, nevertheless bears offspring because of the promise of God and the work of the Spirit of God. You see how it is mirrored in the experience and in the life of Sarah. Barren, in human terms, powerless to conceive, powerless to produce offspring. And yet, because of the work of the Spirit and the promise of God, this barren woman produces offspring through which people are saved. And, and Paul's like, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's kind of how the church works. The, the bride of Christ, and yet powerless in human terms, just left to our own devices, left to our own resources. We can't save anybody. Right? The church cannot bring anyone to know Jesus left to their own devices on, on the basis of human initiative. I don't care how brilliant we are, how much money we've got, how, how creative we are, how brilliant our service. Human effort, human initiative, human resources, human potential, human capacity cannot build a church. You know, there will never be brothers and sisters for Christ based on the efforts of the church if the efforts of the church is all we have. It takes the promise of God, the covenant, and it takes the power of the Spirit before the church will bear offspring for Christ. That's why, that is why, you know what, seriously guys, um, (laughs) prayer, this is a spirit, the Spirit has to dwell within our mission and our worship and our evangelism. Or no one will become Christians. Now I'm going to say this is going to sound kind of weird. It's not even enough just to kind of preach the gospel. We need to be praying and seeking God to be indwelling by His Spirit the efforts of the church in evangelism. Because it is only on the promise of God and it is only by the power of the Spirit that we will see Jesus Adopting people into the family of God. But when we see that, oh, Isaiah goes on. Again, Isaiah 54. Then, oh, brilliant. This is what the church is like. A city rebuilt with stones of turquoise and foundations of lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements with rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, your walls of precious stones. All your your children will be taught by the Lord. Great will be their peace. In righteousness, you will be established. And Paul's like, that, all that, those big ideas are all kind of embodied in the life and the experience of Sarah. 
You see, this is one of the things Paul's wanting to teach. He's like, you've got these guys at Galatia who are wanting to go back to like Old Testament Christianity. And Paul's like, this is Old Testament Christianity. Right? What I'm teaching you, this is, this is, from the days of Genesis, this is what Christianity's been about. This is one of Paul's themes. He keeps coming back to this. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. You know, it's like, if you wanted to summarize the teaching of Moses, if somebody said to you, right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what's it all about? Oh, it's easy. It's all about how the Messiah would suffer and will be the first to rise from the dead and will bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Right? In other words, Gentiles, you don't have to obey the law in order to be Christian. See, this has always been the way God works. He's always saved people who have trusted in Jesus. Who've trusted the promise and who have relied on the power of the Spirit. And sinful humanity has always tried to walk the path of legalism. To take something that God offers as a gift on the basis of promise, something that can only be received when it has been forged by His power at work within us, and to say, it's all right, we can work that out ourselves. We don't need you to give us righteousness because we're good people who go to church. And we can be good enough on our own. Thank you very much. But actually, that religion is fruitless, powerless, godless relies on human initiative and human ingenuity and human resources and human categories and human capacity and human potential and it is earthly and it leads to rejection by God. God's laws, God's ways have always been the same. No one has ever been saved by obeying the law. That's not what the law was given for. He's always rejected those who have sought to stand before him on the merits of their own righteousness. God has always rejected those who thought they could be good enough on their own always rejected those who have rejected Christ. I don't need a Savior. I don't need Jesus to give me His righteousness because I'm good enough on my own. God always rejects those people. You see, this is Paul's point in Galatians 4, verse 21. He's like, look, guys, you want to be under the law? Have you ever listened to the law? 
You ever read the law? Do you actually know what the law says? The law says, don't be a legalist. Remember we were thinking a couple of weeks ago, the law says, you need to go to Jesus. It's not, God isn't like, I was thinking about this this week, because it's that season of, of uh, school applications. Which means people who've never talked to me about their kids before, suddenly are desperate to talk to me about their children. And there's a little bit of me who's always hopeful that what they really want is to talk about how their kids are doing spiritually. But no, they turn up with the form, and can you fill out the form for us to get our kids? And, and, and you know, it, it literally is. If you go to church enough, you're in. I think a lot of people think heaven's kind of like that. If you go to church enough, you're in. Right? Paul's like, no. Right? The slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Now, my guess is when it's put that starkly, we struggle with that. We struggle with the idea that God just rejects people. You know, that if you try to earn your own salvation by being moral, by being good enough on your own, God will reject you. I think we often misunderstand the word grace. So what we think it means is that, well, so long as, so long as you're sincere, so long as you mean well, as long as your heart's in the right place, you know, God will turn a blind eye and it'll, it'll all be fine in, in, in the end. That's not what grace is. Right? Paul's emphatic. That, you know, you, you want a religion that is based on human effort then you will never share in the inheritance of the people of God. Right? Even when you want... You know, there's that incredible moment, isn't there, in, in Genesis 17, where Abraham actually pleads with God for Ishmael, doesn't he? He says, oh, that Ishmael, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing." No. See, God doesn't help those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that? God helps those who help themselves. That is the very opposite of what the Bible teaches. God helps those who've given up helping themselves, who've come to the end of themselves, and who will come to be helped by Christ. Now, it's not the only rejection that Paul speaks about in Galatians 4. Um, legalists reject Jesus. We don't need Jesus. We can do this on our own. God rejects legalists who rely on their own efforts 
But we're actually told as well that legalists reject authentic, grace-based, spirit-filled Christians. You, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, at that time, going back to the story in Genesis 21 of uh, Isaac and Ishmael, at that time, the son born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. And, says Paul, it is the same now. Now, we need to be really careful here. You see, Paul isn't talking about the persecution that comes from outside the church. He's not talking about the kind of persecution that comes from other, other religions. He's not talking about the persecution that comes from pagan empires or atheistic states. Paul is talking, remember, go back to the story. Isaac and Ishmael, they're in the same household. Paul is talking about a persecution that comes from within the structures of the visible church. Right? See, churches, we'll, we'll talk about this a bit more next week. The reason there is a whole book in the Bible that just deals with the subject of legalism is because the church will always be riddled with legalists. Always. It was in Paul's days. It is in our day. People who think of themselves, I'm, I'm a good person, and because I am a good person, I go to church. I'm a good person, and if I just do enough of the religious stuff, I'll be okay with God. And those people, Paul's teaching us, those people will persecute genuine Christians with whom they share the visible structural life of church denominations. Christians who believe and who preach the gospel of grace. Now, here's, here's the question I want to kind of finish on tonight. Um, and it's why. Why does this spirit-filled, grace-based, trusting in the promise of God to save us by Jesus, why is it that that provokes such hatred from legalists? And, and there are, there are there are two reasons I can think of, and they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And the first reason is to do with what Paul calls in Galatians the offense of the cross. Um, you see, when, when people trust, trust Jesus, all right, it, it's like we were saying a minute ago, you know, God helps those who've given up on themselves. God helps those who've come to an end of themselves. God helps those who have said, I have nothing to bring to this except for the sin that I need to be saved from. Right? The cross is about saying, I am not a good person. 
I am not good enough and I will never be good enough. I need something else. You see, this is what Paul says in Galatians 3. Look, seriously guys, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. If you could be saved by obeying the law, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. The reason Jesus has to come and die is because there is no other way. There is no other way, as Paul says, there is no other way to rescue us from this present evil age. So when we come to the cross, when we come to Jesus and we give up on ourselves and we simply trust Him, then what we are saying is that we accept God's verdict on us. There is no one who is good. No, not one. We can't be the kind of people that God God calls us to be. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. We're enslaved by the God of this world. We can't do this. And that is a standing indictment against everyone who believes they can. You see, there is nothing that a moral, upright, self-respecting individual The kind of person who's never hurt anyone and who's always tried tried to live their life in a way that's right by other people. There is nothing that that kind of person hates more than someone who says by their actions that being moral, being good, being the kind of person who lives a good life is simply not good enough. We are a standing testimony that we can only be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Secondly, and with this I want to really just set us up for next week. The other reason that um, the other reason that legalists hate authentic Christians is because there's a sense of exposure. You see, if I'm living in a world where I have to be good enough, then the one thing I mustn't do is look at the objective standards that God lays down for life. What I want to do instead is measure myself relatively against other people. Because that way, I can keep believing the lie that I'm good enough. Because, broadly speaking, I'm probably not much better or or much worse than a lot of other people. So as long as I measure myself against other sinners, I I I can suspend disbelief. I can... I can, I can hope that I'm good enough because I'm better than some other people. 
But uh, remember that authentic Christianity isn't driven by human ability. Authentic Christianity is driven by divine ability. By the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Authentic Christianity lifts us above what is achievable through human effort. It raises the bar to the life that God has actually called us to live. And the result, as we'll begin to see next week, is that it is only Christians who are trusting Christ and who are filled with the Spirit who can actually fulfill the law and obey it and live by it. It is those who live by the Spirit who will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 It's Christians who are trusting the promise who will bear the fruit of the Spirit who will live the life of Jesus. Galatians 2.20 And whose faith will express itself through love. And you see, when you put the genuine article next to the fake. The forgery is exposed. This is why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much. So long as they just compared themselves to other sinners, they could live with the illusion of their holiness and righteousness. But as soon as someone who was genuinely holy and righteous, as soon as somebody who, who incarnated the law, embodied the law, actually lived the law for real, as soon as somebody like that turns up, then the inadequacy of the, quote, righteousness of the Pharisees is suddenly exposed for what it is. It's why Jesus told his disciples that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If all you can do is live life at the level of the Pharisees, we are like Nicodemus. You won't even see the kingdom of God. But Jesus knows that when we trust Him and the Spirit of God takes residence in our life, you know, then suddenly a, a way of living opens up for us that is not possible outside of our outside of relationship with God. And when you're living in a way that exceeds anything that a legalist could achieve, then you expose the falsehood of everything that a legalist has built their life on. Of course, of course they're going to react against that. Now you see, Paul had been on both sides of this, hadn't he? Paul had been a legalist. Right? As for righteousness, according to the law, I was faultless. So how did he react to the church? Oh, he did everything he could 
to eradicate it. But interestingly, now that he is a Christian, Paul is being persecuted himself by legalists. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, we'll come to this next week. Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. This is such a significant part of authentic Christianity within church. That when Martin Luther, back in 1535, when some of you were just whippersnappers. That was a joke, sorry. But when Martin Luther, back in 1535, was, was lecturing through Galatians, he said this. Feel the force of this. Um, and we'll let it set us up for next week. If someone doesn't want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let them not even claim to be a Christian. Isn't that extraordinary? If someone doesn't want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let them not even claim to be a Christian. Right? This, this experience within the church of authentic, grace-based Jesus-trusting, Spirit-filled Christians. It is so inevitable that they will be persecuted by legalists that Martin Luther is willing to say that's kind of the defining feature of authentic Christianity. Well, bear it in mind. And we'll see you over the next couple of weeks if we we agree with them or not.